Good morning. For those of you who do not know, I am not Pastor Jonathan Rourke. So if this is your first week, do not judge too harshly. Our teaching pastor, he is in Peru right now, serving alongside John Cavandal and preaching at a church down there. And I mean, what a great testimony to the fact that the church, the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world and we get to partake and partner with churches all over the place. And so I get the opportunity to preach to you guys this morning. And I would like to start off by blame shifting to John Stead. Should this go long, he asked me to preach three sermons in one. So I will do that to the best of my ability. But I would like to preemptively blame John. <laughs> I don't think there's a, another spot in the world that is more densely populated with people that I love and people that I know love me than this room right here. I moved here a little over two years ago, and this church has become really the nucleus of my life in every way. The people here is a representation of what my whole life in this area has been. And so I'm so grateful I would not want to preach anywhere else more than right here to my home church. I'd like to start off from reading from Romans. So turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6. And not wanting this to be a sermon that dies the death of a thousand qualifications, I will also say that this won't be really a traditional expositional sermon. It would be what you might call textpositional. It is from the text, but it is from various scriptures as you see in your order of service. And I want to start by prompting you guys with a question that comes from Romans chapter 6. Paul starts off this chapter saying, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? My question for you guys is, do you understand what Paul just said? I think if I read that, and if I even quoted it without reading, if I said, shall we sin that grace may abound, everyone would say probably in one voice, what? By no means, no, God forbid. But do we say that from familiarity because we know what the answer to the question is, or does Paul's logic actually make sense to us? Do we understand it? At this point in the book of Romans, the question and the answer should be obvious, and I will give us a break. We have not actually immediately been in Romans, so give us a little bit of a break, but I would also argue that the logic of the question and the logic of the answer and the reason for the answer is as obvious to the Christian life as it is in the book of Romans. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's treated as an elementary, basic first principle. This is an answer that you have to have in the Christian life. When you ask the question of what motivates obedience, why do we obey? And I say maybe all of us are jumping to the right answer without understanding as an indictment primarily on myself. And if you're a Christian that was like me for a lot of years, this logic escaped me. 
I felt almost tricked by Paul's question. The question did seem obvious. If you present a gospel of free grace, unmerited, unforfeitable, you cannot lose it. It is by nothing that you have done and is kept by nothing that you will do. What then motivates a people to be holy? If you remove fear, what causes obedience? What causes a changed life and a changed heart? I felt tricked by Paul's question, right? He says, should we sin that grace may abound? That logically makes sense, but he almost, in an insulting way to my heart, dismisses it. It is silly. It is a foolish idea. The question is reminiscent of another question that Paul will ask in the flow of Romans. He will condemn a group as slanderous when they say that Paul's gospel is basically a gospel of why not do evil that good may come? Why not do evil that good may come? He says, this is a slanderous charge. And the question is, why is it slanderous? How is it that free forgiveness all the time, all the time grace, all the time the merit of somebody else, how is it slanderous to think that that might lead to a licentious life? The answer to that question is union with Christ. This is the bridge between an unconditional, unrepayable, unearnable, unforfeitable grace that we find in Christ and a life that actually seeks to live holy, set apart, worthy of the gospel, worthy of Christ, zealous for good works, a new creation created for good works. This is what connects orthodoxy and orthopraxy. This is what changes us from a people that are a people of just the creeds, but a people of creeds and deeds, of doctrine and duty, of freedom and service, good news and good works. Union with Christ is what connects from the mind to the heart to the hands. If we were following along with Paul, we would have just finished Paul teaching us about our connection to Christ and its other antitype in the Old Testament, our connection to Adam. All of us are connected to what you might call the ministry of Adam. We wouldn't say it was a very good ministry, ultimately, but it was one. He represented us. We were in him. His success and failure would have real consequences for those he was representing. And who was he representing? All of mankind. All right, Paul says, like Adam... Christ came as a second Adam to represent us. And where Adam's sin brought death and the consequence of sin, condemnation, Jesus' ministry not only did not fail like Adam, but redeemed. Have you guys seen the illustration? Maybe you've seen this in youth group where you'll stand a student up on a chair and you'll stand a student below them, and you will say, your goal as the person on the chair is to pull the person onto the chair, and the person on the ground's goal is to pull you down. Have you seen this illustration before? This illustration is used to say, it is a lot easier for a bad influence to pull you down than for a good influence to pull up. And hopefully the application is, don't have unbelieving friends. But I think this illustration actually serves the point of what Paul says. He says, there's a difference between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Adam. Christ, his job was to actually pull a people up. Adam needed only not to fail, right? That's the difference. One act of disobedience condemned all mankind. And what did Christ have to do? His obedience had to not just be active, but it had to be passive. He had to receive the guilt. He had to fulfill all righteousness. His job was to 
pull up, not just don't be pulled down. So Christ represents us in a greater way. And because of what Christ has done, we are told by Paul that there is now a logical problem with sin. There's a positional problem. You've been put into a new category, into a new nature. You have died with Christ, right? This is why he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it, right? It's almost a problem of authority. Sin doesn't have the dominion, doesn't have the authority. Imagine if your first boss that you ever had called you today and said, I'm not happy with your performance. You'd say, I don't work for you anymore. We have not any relationship. You do not have authority over me. And Paul uses a similar logic to say that we have died to sin. How can we live in it? He'll connect us to all these stages of the ministry of Christ. He'll say, if Christ died, then we what? We died. If Christ raised, then we raised. And baptism symbolizes that. We are buried with him, we are raised with him. This is the logic of the Christian life. Paul will again and again say in this section of chapter 6 that we know. He says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified. And my question for you is, do you know that? Does that come into play when you ask the question, why should I obey? Do you think, well, the version of me that does not want to obey is dead. My old self is crucified. He says in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now look at this crucial part of verse 11. It is assumed that if you are connected to Christ, he says you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The way you think about your connection to Christ is crucial. Union with Christ, you can think of it very simply and principally as as it goes for Christ, so it goes for you. In his victory, you're victorious. In his innocence, you are innocent. You are honored in his honor, glorified in his glory, buried in his death, raised in his life, ruling in his kingdom, praying to his father, living by his spirit, abiding in him, joined to his body of which he is the head, enjoying his inheritance, his joy, his peace, his wisdom. To be united to Christ is to be in Christ. It is to be a Christian. Union with Christ is a paradigm-shifting idea. It changes your mind. And if that is not the way that you think about your Christian life, you need an overhaul of your thinking. Right? Union with Christ is one of the most, if not the most, assumed and yet overlooked doctrines in the Bible. It is so assumed, and I want to spend time this morning proving that point, that it's not just taught, it is assumed throughout the New Testament. Union with Christ is anything but an impractical doctrine, right? What does Titus say? The book of Titus says that the grace of God has appeared, training us to denounce ungodliness. There's a connection between the grace of God and a holy life. Right? I think sometimes we think of the Christian life and we see a disparity between the freeness of the gospel and the motivation to obey. In union with Christ, you can think about taking binoculars, where when you first get a set of binoculars, and maybe they're set for the last person's eye width and things like that, you have to put them together to put the image together, you have to focus it, and what initially seems like two separate ideas 
turns into one picture, the Christian life. United to Christ, committed to good works. It is not impractical. Impractical is living a life trying to meet Christian duties and directives without an understanding of what fans the flame of the Spirit in your life. To chew on the commands of Scripture and to overlook the motivation for it, to digest and then gargle and spit out exactly what is true and what you need to know is true, what you must consider and regard to be true in order to obey is very impractical. Right, now, we are a church, and I hope you get this sense whether or not you've been here today or you've been here for a long time. We're a church that cares very deeply about getting Christ every Sunday morning. We care very deeply about connecting the dots from the Christian life to Christ. I want to connect Christ to our good living. And I think the only way to do that properly is to at least initiate this idea that you need to plumb the depths of what it means to be united to Christ in your thinking, in your study, in your application, so that Christ can penetrate to who you are. He can change your mind. He can work out in your hands. And I want to do that in two primary ways. I want to look at positional union with Christ and material blessings from that union with Christ. And I want to hit you with too many things for one sermon. And it's on purpose. It's not from a lack of editing. It's not redundant for redundancy's sake. It is to make a point. Positional blessings in Christ. How should we think of our positional blessings in Christ? Well, simply, it is when God changes our position, our identity, and our status through the work of Jesus Christ. He has changed our position, identity, and status through the work of Jesus Christ. All right, this is foundational. This is, you know, think about the illustration of joining a sports team. This is as foundational as believing that you are a member on the team, right? So before performance or practice or equipment or gear or training or where are you going to serve on this team, you have to know you're on it, All right? And this is foundational. You think of passages like Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 where Paul says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, right? Positional. You were a slave. You are that no longer. You are now a son. And with that comes implications. We can imagine the difference between being a slave and a son, but Paul will even tell us, if you are a son, then you are an heir, right? The position comes with certain privileges and rights. He'll say again in Romans eight seventeen, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, so if I want to prove to you that the New Testament assumes categorically that you are united to Christ, then I want to look at some of the parts where it not only teaches it, which it does, but where it does assume it. Let's think, first of all, how is the church referred to? A lot of times the church is used or is referred to using illustrations, using word pictures to help us understand what it's like to be a Christian. And what are these illustrations? Well, we are called the body, right? And what is the implication of being called the body? The body is nothing without the what? I heard some whispers. The body is nothing without what? The head. And tied to this idea of the church being the body of Christ is connected to intimacy, leadership, sustaining power, the unity that we ought to have, the diverse gifts that we ought to have in the church. We're called the temple that God is occupying 
and what is attached to being a temple an assumed level of purity, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, the church itself is corporately a temple, and you are to be unified, made up of Jews and Gentiles, not divided. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? These illustrations painting a picture of a life that implied with that life is a life of purity. God is with you. Right? We are called the branches of which he is the vine. We derive our energy from him. We will be pruned by his father. We are called the family of which he's the older brother. There's privileges and rights and mercy. We are called the fold of which he is the shepherd. Right? We are the sheepfold. We are the sheep and he gives us protection and guidance and food. We are called the bride and he is the groom. Right? Is there another illustration that assumes a close, intimate union with Christ, but then be called the bride of which he is the groom? We are cherished and protected and loved and pursued and committed to him in unbreakable covenant. Right? We are called a building of which he is the builder, the kingdom, a city of which he is the king, a house of which he is the builder. All these illustrations assume before anything, assume union with Christ. It is not a pending reality. It is not to be determined at the end. It is what you assume in the beginning. And more than the illustrations, the very names of Christians, the titles used to refer to Christians, Paul never calls people Christians. His most used and repeated idea is that we are those who are in Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, or Galatians 1, 22. You don't get far into his letters before he references who he's talking to, those in Christ. Those in Christ. We are called saints and holy ones. That is not a title for the particularly good Christian. He writes the Christians, the church as the saints, the holy ones, the set-apart ones. It's definitional. John's favorite idea is to call you the beloved. What is it to be beloved without the one who is loving? Right? It assumes that you are the object of the one who loves you. He calls us brothers and sisters, children of God. All of these titles assume union with Christ. Listen to the way Paul in Colossians chapter 3 will transition in a way from the positional truths to the commands. Even when he's trying to transition to tell them how to live, he can't help but to remind them who they are. He says in Colossians 3.12, put on then, put on then, if you are of Christ, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Right? He calls them three things that assume their union with Christ before he can even get a command out of his mouth. Another way to prove that the Bible, the New Testament, assumes union with Christ, this is going to sound obvious, but I don't think it is by the way that we often practice reading our Bibles, is that the recipients of the letters to the churches are Christians. The New Testament epistles are written to Christians. Now, you can say that is an obvious notion, but there is a way to read your Bible as a Christian as if you're not a Christian. Now, some of you in this room, in reading your Bibles, you one day realize you weren't. You don't live like, love like, look like, think like a Christian. 
And the Bible can serve the purpose to expose that what you are saying about your life isn't true. It can tell you you're not a believer. But if you are a Christian, the Bible is written for you as a believer. And if you turn to the Bible every time as merely an evaluation, then you take the commands of Scripture and you put a question mark where there's not a question mark. If Paul says, forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you, and the only thing you do with that passage is ask, have I forgiven everybody? The answer is probably no. Paul wrote it to Christians assuming they weren't doing that perfectly, hearing they weren't doing that perfectly. So as a Christian, we take that command for our life and we say, I need to forgive. Particularly how is Christ forgave me? So we meditate on that and we change. We go to Christ for pardon because we have not forgiven and we go to him for power that we ought to. Right? But a lot of times in our Christian life, we just take commands of Scripture and we put a question mark, like a self-evaluative question mark where an exclamation point is. And it shows us that we are not being reminded often enough that we are Christians. You read that book assuming it's written to another group, this group that's pretending to be Christians and everyone needs to be exposed, and the Holy Spirit can do that. But it's not the primary means that he does that. It's not the primary use of the Scriptures, So let us be those who understand that when the Bible is written to Christians, we are those who uphold the law. Listen to this from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Hopefully this is familiar to us. Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Right? This is simple Christian doctrine. By works of the law, no one will be saved. You will never be saved by your good works. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, that is a genuine function of the law. It shows you the standard that you cannot attain to. And we are told in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. How is the righteousness of God manifested? It was through the gospel. Now Paul anticipates another silly religious question at the end of this section in verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Right? Part of the gospel is a changed nature of which God has given you so that we can obey the law. And and dear Christians, if you only take the part of the commands that tells you that you're not doing it well, don't be shocked. That'll happen a lot. But if you do not then obey, you're missing the point, and maybe it's because you're forgetting that the purpose is to write to Christians. There is a proper place for Christians to be told to obey, not just that they're not. Union with Christ, again, I will say, is definitional. And I could belabor the point, and I think I will. The logic of the imperatives, the logic of the commands of Scripture assume union with Christ. And in many ways, that assumed union has the opposite effect that you might think it will, right? The Christian life is not about hope and peace and confidence and assurance being dangled in front of you like a carrot on a stick to be attained. But we are worried sometimes as naturally religious people that if we don't do that, people won't obey. But think about the complete opposite logic. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 
And some of Paul's most scathing uh, warnings about the dangers of sexual immorality, he will say that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's warning this to a church that is seriously struggling with sexual immorality. And again, he's reminding them of this, is that it is a category error to be in sexual immorality as a Christian. Why? What does verse 15 say? He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Assumed in the Christian's sexual immorality is still union with Christ. Christian, do you not know that when you commit these sins, because you are united to Christ, you bring him into that sin? How much more does that drive the conviction to the heart of someone whose heart has been changed than this idea that when we sin in certain ways, we've wandered from God? That might be giving us too much credit. We'll say things like we feel far from God or we feel like God's distant because of our sin. Be encouraged that that's not true, but also be convicted that that's not true. You are united to Christ. Do you not know? And it is so easy not to know. It is so religious not to know. All other religions hold the conclusion for the end, and we're told in the beginning, it is finished, it is done, obey. It assumes in the imperatives of Scripture that you are united to Christ. We are told that we are no longer slaves and we are sons, and with that comes a behavior, a behavior of even going to God as your father. We've received a spirit not of slavery, but of sonship, by which we call Abba Father. We've been transferred as those who were strangers and aliens to those who are friends, those who are enemies and rebels and dead to those who are soldiers of Christ. We've transferred from death to life. Ephesians, we just read the beginning of Ephesians, all that the Father has accomplished in the Son and fulfilled and applied in the Holy Spirit, Paul will go on to say in very popular and famous passages that you were dead in your sins. But God was rich in mercy and he saved us. And the question is, to what end? Well, in the application of Ephesians chapter 2, at the end he says he saved us that we might do what? He saved us for good works, a workmanship for him. And so in all this positional truth, it actually culminates in a changed life, in the commands that follow. I think it's interesting thinking back to Romans chapter 6 that we are looking at. Paul will kind of be walking through this, Jesus died, we have died. Jesus lives, we live. And then he'll say, Jesus was raised, and therefore we ought to walk in newness of life. It's interesting. It's not the thing you would assume he would say first. You would think he would say, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you are going to raise from the dead. And he will say that. But first he says, Jesus died that we might live in newness of life. This is a legitimate implication of being united to Christ. These positional blessings that we enjoy in Christ, being connected to him and what he's accomplished, is the logic of the Christian life. It is what is meant to sustain you and to mature you and to persevere you and to change you. It is what is heavenly about our religion, right? It is what is illogical to the non-Christian. It is what is foolishness. How do you get a people to behave a certain way without threat of death, without even incentive to a particular level of reward, right? We have all that we're going to have in Christ 
And it is because we're united to him, and we know that this is who we are, that the concern of the Christian is not anymore, who am I, discover myself, find myself. We find our complete identity in Jesus Christ. Right? Paul exemplifies this logic very well in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I died, I no longer live. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Right? These positional truths are what energize Paul in the Christian life. Dear Christian, you must understand positionally that you are in Christ. As it goes for Christ, so it goes for you. Did he die? Then you died. Was death a sufficient wage for your sin? Was his death sufficient? Then your sin is paid for. In the words of William Still, he says, if you are born again, all the evil that dwells in you is the rubbish of a nature that is already crucified. All the evil that dwells in you is the rubbish of a nature already crucified. Did Jesus rise? You will raise. Is he glorified? You will be glorified. Is your forgiveness secure? Are you justified? Right? Did he properly free you? You need to know all these things before you can obey. All these doctrines are tied to a way of life. You've been washed in his blood. You've been purchased, ransomed, reconciled, sanctified, adopted. Right? And what is more heartbreaking to a father who has gone to such lengths to adopt than to question the status of the adoption all the time? We want to look into our, the eyes of our father who's adopted us. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, as it goes for him, so it goes for you. And what's more is he didn't just change positionally where we stand. He does bless us tangibly with what you might call material blessings. And that is not to say that what Christ has done positionally for us is like ethereal, mystical. It is real, right? It's real, and you need to understand that it is real. You the real you, the redeemed, reconciled you, who you will be is secure in heaven, guarded by the power of the triune God, guaranteed by his name. You are hidden in heaven with Christ in God. It is true. So what are these material gifts? These are the gifts and the blessings that the Lord supplies to us to conform us to his son and get us to the end to conform us to his son and to get us to the end. If you're thinking about the illustration of a sports team, we now believe we are on the team and this is what God does. He is not a coach that just says, all right, have at it. He gives you the gear. He tells you the rules. He gives you a team. He identifies your strengths, meets up your weaknesses. This is the logic of Romans 8.32. He says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The ultimate price has been paid. Do you think that God who did not spare his son would let you flounder in your Christian life never to grow? Right? In Philippians, we're told that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. He will bring us to the end. How does he do that? 
Well, I know that in all these doctrines of positional blessings, it's almost as if I've made a meal, prepared, it's, it's sufficient for a full meal. I put in front of you, you're hungry, and I say, and then there's this other meal, right when you get a smell. And then I prepare this other one too, and I want that sense to be intentional, that we're not going as deep as you want to go on any one of these things, and that's on purpose, because I'm trying to show you the breadth of all that the scriptures talk about with union in Christ, so that in your life you can get to the depth so if you thought we moved quickly through positional blessings, you will uh, think that we are flying through the material ones. What does he give us in this life to make us like his son? Well, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift. He is the seal, the promise of our inheritance, the guarantee, the one who applies the work of Christ, the one who empowers us, the one who prays better prayers than we pray, the one who pours out God's love into our heart. The Holy Spirit is the power, the energizing force of the gospel to turn dead sinners into saints. He's the one that can take a choppy, not so great presentation of the gospel and use it to secure a soul eternally. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers the Christian life. Well, what more has he given us? As if that were not enough, he's given us his word. He's given us the word that stands. We do not have to mystically discern the will of God. We don't have to summon him, divine him. We don't have to read tea leaves or life patterns or weather patterns or states of emotion or national prosperity or lack thereof. We do not need to interpret these things as the will of God because he has told us who he is and what he is like what he is doing, what are his promises, what is his character, and we need only listen. Don't find it insignificant that at the end of the day, when apostles are dying, they find it very, very crucial to communicate to the Christian that you need this book. When Peter is dying and writing his last letter, and he knows he's going to die in Second Peter, he says, almost anticipating our desire that we would love to hear God's voice from heaven. We would love to hear, this is what I want you to do for work, right? And Peter says, as someone who heard God's voice from heaven, he was there at the Mount Transfiguration. He heard God say, this is my son. He says, you have in your scriptures a prophecy, a more confirmed, more sure word, Right? Almost as if to say, Christians, I know you're going to think it's unfair when the apostles are gone and these things are no longer happening, but you have what you need. When Paul's going to die and he's going to hand the baton to his protege, Timothy, what does he do? He instills in Timothy a necessary and prerequisite concern for the scriptures. He says it is sufficient to make you complete in every good work, equipped for every good work. The scriptures do not fail. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And he's given that to us. Well, what else has he given us? He's given us the church. And from the church, we find protection and leadership and encouragement and friendship and family and fellowship. We find people that are strong when we're weak, that have a word for us that maybe we've heard a thousand times, but from them, it's what we needed in that exact moment. The church helps guide us and protect us. It is our barracks. It's where we go to get our training and our weapons and our armor so that we can go out there where the mission is. 
He's given us today's needs. Paul will encourage the Philippians that God will meet our daily needs. He is not a father who lets the righteous go hungry or unclothed. He gives us what we need. He gives us suffering and trials. It may not be something that you put in your life in that category as something that God has given us, but Paul's not afraid to use the word grace when he talks about suffering. He says in Philippians that it's it's not just been granted to you to live for Christ, it's been granted to you, graced to you, to suffer for him as well. Right? And in our suffering, the Lord reveals where our faith is, and he shows us where we're leaning on ourselves or our worldly goods or whatever it may be. He shows us where there's still remnants of the old man that has been crucified. And I think there's many in this room that would say to the person who is not going through suffering and uh, maybe is afraid of suffering in the future, there's so many saints here I know that would testify to that exact counterintuitive reality that in our suffering, we realize how close God really is to us and how much we need him. He gives us comfort. He gives us joy, peace, right? There is a positional peace. We've been made at peace with God, but there's also an experiential peace. We're told to cast our anxieties on the Lord, and there is a peace that surpasses understanding. He's given us his peace. He's given us spiritual gifts. These are gifts that you're allowed to re-gift. It is not rude to re-gift them. It is rude to not re-gift them. He has given you gifts that are for the growing and edification of the body. He's given us gifts to give one to another. He's given us spiritual gifts He's given us spiritual fruits, right? Spiritual fruit is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. It's an encouragement to your soul that the old self is being put off. It's encouragement, it's evidence. In the words of Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus, it's also purpose. We are saved for the purpose of good works. He gives us illumination. It's the idea that he helps us to understand and discern the scriptures, the renewing of our mind, He gives us unity and doctrine and unity of mind in the church, right? You think about the church as an illustration that I like that the church is like the spokes on the the wheel of a bicycle. And the closer you get to the center, which is Christ, the closer you get to the core, the closer you're going to find yourself to the church. The spokes get closer towards the center. He's given us that unity. He actually says, when he's commanding us to be humble and to think about others, he says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does he say motivates humility? Think about the incarnation. Think about God the Son becoming man on your behalf, and then see how that applies to your being humble to the person around you. If God became a man for you, you can overlook your needs and prefer others. And he's given that to us. He's given us his armor. We're familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 5. This is every men's ministry's favorite passage. The armor of God. He has given us what we need for the battle, but what we might not know is that this armor is not just a random word picture. Ephesians chapter 5 derives from another idea in Isaiah 59. We're given this picture of God looking down on the earth, and it says that he wondered that there was no one to bring justice and no one to intercede. And what does he say? He says that 
Therefore, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on what? The breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. This armor that we're being told to put on has been tried in battle. It is our elder brothers in the fight. He won the fight in that very armor. It's not just a fun illustration to think about. It is to be said, you are wearing the armor that has already won the fight. So put it on. Finally, I'll stop for sake of time on these material blessings. He has given us his mission. Right? He's given us his mission. He's told the church, as for us, what is our concern in the world? It is to bring the witness of the gospel the witness of Christ and who he is and what he's done and all that he is to the world. So I ask you, do you want to obey the Lord? There's a premium on understanding all that Christ has given us and answering that question. Do you want to obey? Well, Paul says, the love of Christ controls or compels us. Why? Because we've concluded this. That one died for all, therefore all have died. When you look around this room, do you see a redeemed people? Do you see a people that God has determined worthy of his love? Do you conclude with Paul that Christ died for all? Do you want to forgive? Forgive as Christ forgave. You need to understand that. Husbands, do you want to love your wives? How are you told to do that? Well, as Christ has loved the church. And my friends, if you're a Calvinist, you initiate reconciliation. That is a legitimate implication of the work of Christ in your marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Right? We are told as the church submits to Christ, and also in Corinthians, we're told that wives submit to your husbands even as Christ in his humanity submits to the Father. Now, if you hear submission and you think, well, that is an attack on my essence and who I am or even my capabilities, you're making a claim about what the son's submission was. You're saying that Jesus submitted not because he chose to in humility, but because somehow it's connected to his nature, which it is not. Jesus chose in humility to submit himself as a man to the Father. And the more you understand that, oddly enough, it connects to being a wife. Do you want to be humble? Have the mind that is yours in his incarnation. Do you want to persevere to the end? Well, Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Do you want to mature? Well, Paul says, yes, Corinthians, I want you to mature. And he says that him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you want to mature? You need to understand what it means to be in Christ. Do you want to take sin seriously? Well, do you understand that your sin is not separate? That you are violating your nature categorically. You're looking at the work of Christ and all that he offers you in provision and saying that I am closer to the dead man than I am to the living. Do not unite Christ to a prostitute. What is the immediate application of this? And we'll close with this. The simple and immediate application of this is to change your mind. Your mindset matters because your mindset motivates. If you are a Christian, look to Christ. If you are not a Christian, all that I have said is not yours, but it can be. 
Today is the day of salvation, as the, the Bible will tell us, but tomorrow might not be. There may not be a later this afternoon for you. And all of this is offered by free grace to be attained by faith, by just putting your trust in Jesus, acknowledging of your sin, knowing that you bring nothing to him but your guilt. And he receives with open arms all those who draw near. You must believe that you are welcomed to the team. And if you're on the team, you must believe you are still on the team. Right? This is why Paul says you must consider yourself dead to sin. That's a change of mind. Colossians 3, set your minds on the things of Christ. That's a change of mind. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We could also say to change where you're looking. Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus. Colossians, beholding the glory of Christ. All right, the Christian life starts primarily as what is, not what if. Is Jesus worthy? Did he die? Did he raise is the Father pleased with him? Was his blood a sufficient price? Was he raised? Is he seated at the right hand of the Father? Does he plead your name? Does he plead your cause? If you are a Christian, you are united to Christ. And as it goes for Christ, so it goes for you. Let me close by reading from Philippians chapter 3. This will be my final appeal to us as a church to abandon what seems religious in our minds and to pursue Christ. To the most religious man, maybe whoever lived, Paul himself, he says of himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. Heavenly Father, I pray for this church and these saints. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people devoted to good works, motivated by a new nature and a new reality that you have brought to us. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in the way that we constantly lean on you. 
Lord, I pray that at the point of temptation, what would come to our mind is the reality of what you've done. Lord, as our good shepherd, you go through the valley of the shadow of death ahead of us, not just waiting at the other side to see what may come of us. You're the God who has won the victory. I pray that we would live in light of what you have conquered for us, conquering death and its consequence, sin and the law and their dominion over our lives, Lord, that you have brought to us a salvation only in your name. Lord, please be gracious to us and remind us of all that we have in Christ. May this be the beginning for some of us of a new step forward in understanding all that you've done for us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.